Let's pray. Pierce our hearts, O Lord. Open our eyes. Enlighten our minds. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to move in our midst right now. There are things in this passage we need to hear, but we can't hear it on our own unless you, Lord, unite word and spirit and break through walls and show us your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. It's good to be back with you this year. Uh, here last summer. Always enjoy the trip from London to Barrie. And uh, I've been given this privilege of kicking off the first three uh, sermons in this 10-part summer series in the book of Colossians, uh, entitled Invisible God, Visible Faith. Uh, Jordan and Todd are going to close off the series uh, when I'm done at the third sermon. Uh, they've been, but my job is I've kind of got to set it up for you. So uh, just some quick facts on Colossians so that you have some context. Uh, it's only 95 verses long in four chapters. So we're talking short, okay? The first two chapters deal with the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And the, second two, the last two chapters show you how to practice that out in your lives, and this week and next, I'm only going to be in really chapter one, and I'm going to tell you something. Really, there is no greater picture, as condensed as this, of Jesus Christ in his full glory than Colossians 1. So you'll want to have your uh, Bible in hand for this uh, and follow along uh, phrase by phrase because Paul, uh, typical Paul, is packing a lot into every sentence. So impactful and condensed this is. So let's just start off together in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now, let me just give you a little geographic uh, situational setting. Uh, I got two maps for you. One, there's the whole Roman Empire of the day. It's big, okay? It surrounds the entire Mediterranean Sea. All I need you to notice is the red circle because that area is where we're at. Okay, and then the second slide, we can zoom in a bit, and even in that circle, there's a lot of towns, but the, there's really only two that matter for this book today. One is a town called Ephesus, which is on the coast, and then inland, about 100 miles, is another uh, town called Colossae. Ephesus would be like Toronto, and Colossae would be like Barrie. So Ephesus is bigger, it's on the water, you're kind of on the water, but Barry is down the road, okay? And Colossae happens to be a nexus point in the Roman Empire um, where, uh, due to the trade routes, a whole bunch of things came together. You've got, it's really the, the meeting point for East meeting West, You've got, this is where people, trade, ideas, religion, philosophy, relationships kind of came together. Now, Paul's never been here. Actually, when he's writing this, he's in the darkness of a Roman prison. And a man who Paul discipled, who did shepherd the church there, more on him later, brought him news about the church that prompted Paul to write because there was a situation. What's the situation? So some, of the, uh, some teachers had infiltrated the church, started to gain some influence, and they, uh, they uh, came with a, s a secret teaching, kind of. Uh, it was uh, officially, nowadays looking at it, it's called Gnosticism, derived from the Greek word for knowledge. And they basically said this. If you really wanted to distill it down, it says this. It's great that you have Jesus, that you've learned the, the simple, basic gospel of Paul, but, 
But we've got some other things you need to know, some, some deeper stuff, some, some secret stuff that others just don't know about. And when you get in on our teaching and, you, and kind of mix it in with what you already have, you're going to go deeper and, and really experience union with the divine. Very interesting. They tended to mix, uh, mix mysticism, ceremonies, philosophy, even astrology, and some Jewish legalism right into the blender. So whatever was coming out of that blender was, was, was quite the mix. Very, uh, very similar to what's happening now. Very relevant passage. And some Christians in Colossae were getting confused. They were, they were actually getting tempted. They were feeling like, geez, I better get in on this. So, so you got Bob from Colossae who's like, yeah, Jesus is my number one, but my Jewish mystic neighbor is so good at prayer, I think I'm going to borrow some of his approach. And then my other neighbor, my Druid neighbor over there, he, does, he believes some weird things and, and at night does some, some funky stuff with cloaks and animals, but his business is thriving. So I'm just going to go borrow whatever he's into and, and kind of add it into my walk with Jesus. And repeatedly through this book, over and over and over again, Paul's going to be undermining the entire thing. So there's your context. Notice verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Pause there. Colossians 1 is considered to be the power chapter on prayer. And often, people go right to verse 9, where the prayer really starts to heat up, and that's kind of where they go for their, you know, all the nuggets of information there. It's awesome. We're going to go through that. But I think that's a truncated view of Paul's entire prayer, uh, which he tells us right in verse 3 uh, that he's beginning with thanksgiving, and we see him build from there to 14. So I would have you see it as this is a package of prayer ideas. The title of the message today is A Prayer of Faith because it deals with some real questions I think we've all asked. What is effective prayer? What is faithful prayer? How do I pray for other people? How do I pray for myself? Does it matter what I pray as long as I'm praying? For some of you here today, your answer might be, I don't like praying because it doesn't do anything. I'm still broken. God seems silent continuously. And maybe you're in a valley right now and that, that's, that's so you. So I'm going to take this package and it's dense. So I'm, going to, I'm just going to splinter it into five portions for you. Because really what I'm going for here is I want you walking out of here today with a sense of encouragement about prayer for yourself, for others, and for why you can do it and how you can do it. I phrased all of these points with personal pronouns to just help you apply them to yourself. So let's get started with this first thing, gospel. My prayer must be grounded in the gospel. Notice verse 4. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Stop there for a moment. Most of you are likely familiar with uh, Paul's famous triad, faith, hope, and love. I mean, where, what wedding have you not been at where that's not been read? But have you noticed that he changes the order here? Faith, love, and hope. I'll explain why in a moment when I deal with, with hope, but uh, without question, first is always faith, it's mentioned in uh, all the trios because apart from faith, there is no Christian experience. Here Paul was very specific about the object of their faith, Jesus Christ. Now, the world says everyone needs faith. 
I mean, you, you can go on any, any Instagram post, any, any, any Netflix show, talk to anyone at work. People are always talking about faith. Faith's good. You need faith. You got to have faith. Faith means you're okay. Faith means you're a well put together person. But the truth is, faith has no value in itself. It has to derive value from the object you're putting your faith in. Every time I hear someone say, I have faith, the obvious question is, faith in what? Faith in reincarnation? Faith in spirituality? Faith in nature? Faith in faith? The good news of the gospel is that salvation comes to anyone who believes in Jesus that what he accomplished on the cross is sufficient to forgive them. And they have faith in that. So when you show up in heaven someday and you stand before Almighty God and you, and, 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 and you will be there, by the way, and you will stand before him, and he says, why should I let you into heaven? You're not going to be uh, breaking out your resume with the answer, well, I didn't kill anyone, I was a good citizen, and I love my kids. Because if that's all you've got on your resume, it's not going to cut it. The answer, the only answer, as it relates to faith, is the... You, Almighty God, the only reason you should let me into heaven is because Jesus, your son, forgave me, and I received the free gift of eternal life. By faith, I received it, and I believed it, and I believe that it was sufficient for my forgiveness. Now, that is the faith that Paul is talking about. And some of you today need to ask yourself an honest question. Is that where I'm at? Am I at that place? Am I even thinking about it? Or have I already ruled that out? In the Gospels, Jesus says what you do with the issue of faith and who you put it in has eternal implications. Now, look at verse 4. The love that you have for all the saints. You see, Paul's just rejoicing in this, and this is what he's praying in thanksgiving to God. That's actually a subversive statement against these Gnostics. See, these are the kind of people that came into the church and they create division. And what they do is they create an insider-outsider kind of thing going on. So you're an insider if you're down with these secret club meeting teachings that show you all this stuff, and you're an outsider if you're just sort of, you know, a ding-dong believing the, the basic simple gospel, and apparently you weren't, you know, invited into the deeper teaching. There is no room in the church for insiderness. That's what Paul is thanking God for. There's no room for it. Doesn't matter whether we're talking about your your preferences for worship or or how Christianity gets expressed in the local church or culture or race or ideology or politics or whatever family you come from in the church. There's no room for insiderness because you know what it does? It just creates cliques and cliques create division and it separates people from others that Christ has himself accepted. And I'm going to tell you the enemy loves division. Can I just add, being in the church quite a while, Church is an awesome place, you know, for meeting, to see friends and family. And over time, what can happen is it can become a comfort zone for you. You know, you go to church, you love the worship, and then, the, then you go to your comfort zone after to just hang repeatedly week after week after week with your friends and your family, all the while bypassing people who are there that are lonely outcast, neglected, and overlooked. They feel it, 
I would just encourage you, apparently these Colossians had, had found a way to break through that. And Paul's saying, gospel love goes beyond the boundaries of your comfort zone. That is a sign of the Holy Spirit at work in the church. Skip to the middle of verse 5 with me. Notice what he says. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. And then, if you will, just jump to the end of verse 6. Notice this phrase. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Pause. Two times here, he refers to the gospel as the truth. Do you know what truth means? Truth means there's content. Truth means there's information. There's some things you have to believe. If it's a word of truth, you must reject propositions that are opposed to it. That, that just follows logically from what Paul says. It's not vague. It's not cloudy and mystical as the heretics are teaching. It's the truth. See, other religions say, here's the way. Jesus says, I'm the way. Other religions says, here's the truth, follow it. Jesus says, no, I'm the truth, follow me. Other religions say, here's what you need to do to be a righteous person. Jesus says, no, I'm your righteousness. That's the gospel. In all his letters, you can check me out after, go, go just read through them. Paul is talking to people who are saying constantly, at the end of the day, saying, I have Jesus, but I also need this or that to really know God or to really be right with God or really be satisfied. And his answer is always the same. All of your problems come from the, but I also need. Paul will tell them, get rid of those. They stop you from seeing that the gospel is Jesus himself. You think the gospel is about Jesus? Jesus in something else? No. The gospel is Jesus. There is nothing else. When you become a Christian, he becomes your righteousness. He is your holiness. He is your wisdom. Why? Because he came and lived the life you should have lived... I should have lived, and he died the death that you should have died, I should have died. And you're like, what's with all this talk about the gospel? I thought you were going to be you know, unlocking the keys to prayer for me today. Don't you see? He's doing that. He's saying that the essence of prayer is grounded in the gospel. You take away these things that I've just said about the gospel and just try to fabricate prayer. You've got no foundation to build on. Notice the middle of verse 7. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Okay, so I love this dude, Epaphras. We know from the book of Acts that Epaphras went to Ephesus, this major city on the coast. He, he hears Paul preach, and his life is transformed. Becomes a Christian. The gospel changes him. He heads, heads back to his, his city, Colossae. And he begins to share this good news, and he begins to preach and teach and shepherd there. And then notice verse 6, what, what, what Paul says, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you. Paul's just trying to say this, wherever it goes, the gospel works. Wherever it goes, People are believing and being transformed. Listen, Christianity is, 
in regard to ethnicity is not ethnocentric. It's not one culture or people group. It spreads across cultures. It spreads across countries. It spreads across belief system. It infiltrates them monotheistic, polytheistic religions. It, it infiltrates cultures that are irreligious, that have no religion whatsoever, where religion is just considered from a bygone era. And here's one of the key reasons. Remember, I left out the word hope back in verse 5. I told you it seemed a little out of order from what we're used to hearing. We're used to faith, hope, and love, but here the order is faith, love, hope. Look at verse 5 again. That'll explain why. He says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Why the order switch? It's that word because. Paul is saying here that hope is an accelerant. It's a, it's a turbocharger for faith and love. Okay? When your faith, when your love is, is under pressure, under strain, you know, the, 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 the gas tank's draining. This kind of spiritual hope impacts it, drives it. You ask, does the order matter? Yes, it does, Paul would say. He's saying there's a supernatural hope that enables you to continue believing, continue loving. You say, hope of what? It's an interesting one. You know, the word hope is one of those words that's kind of a bit messed up in our day. Hope used to mean absolute confidence in something that I cannot see right now. But now it's kind of just evolved into uh, hope so. Like, uh, you know, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. You know, I, I hope we can do that cruise in Cozumel next year. Uh, I hope Pastor Todd comes back with a Scottish accent. That'd be kind of cool to see him preaching. <clears throat> hope doesn't mean hope so. In the Bible, hope means deep-seated assurance in my heart that it will happen. That's something that verse 5 laid up for you in heaven. Laid up literally means stored or saved for you. It's saved for you. What's up there? Heaven, glory, a crown. The message of the gospel is, is not like money that's at the finish line that will be yours if you finish first. The message of the gospel is that money's in the bank. It's already yours. God has accepted you. He has absolutely accepted you. And now, what does it mean to work that gospel out into your life? That's what comes next in the prayer request. Notice this second thing, knowledge. Knowledge. Growing in the knowledge of God is not optional for me. It's just not. Look at verse 9. And so, from the day we heard... Okay, I, I just got to pause there. I, I kind of I love his... And so... You know why? Because Paul knows he just dropped a bomb of gospel truth on you that he weaves into his prayer, but he wants you to have that in your prayer so that you're drawing from it as you're praying. Catch me? From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled. Filled with what, Paul? filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, that's interesting. He's uh, encouraging them. And what I love is he's attacking the Gnostic teachers at the same time. Very cool. Where, where are you getting this attacking bit? Do you see how he beelines it right to the word knowledge? Knowledge was the entire, secret knowledge was the entire basis of the Gnostics. Here, Paul is hijacking the word from them and making everything in, in his prayers deal with it so that the Colossians wake up from their slumber and see it. 
and it's smart because they're under siege by these people who said they needed a deeper knowledge, a secret knowledge beyond the basic gospel, which, as we've seen, is anything but. But some were falling for it. They were feeling inferior. They were lacking. Paul's praying, Father, fill them with wisdom and insight to the max. Grow them. Make them fuller in their knowledge of you. Now, three words stand out from those verses. Will, wisdom, and understanding. Just quickly, number one, will. The knowledge of God's will is what God wants from us as we get to know Him. And you know, <laughs> I've done this so many times. I, I know, i got to believe some of you have. Um, everyone thinks God's will is primarily about geography or jobs or things. And I'm not saying, by the way, that those things aren't felt deeply, especially when they're lacking in your life or if there's a dilemma in your life, or, in your, or if you're in pain about the problems related to them. But in this passage here, God's will is not about where you are or should be, but it's about who you are and what kind of choices you're making. And then he adds wisdom and understanding. Now, they're, they're, they're somewhat synonymous. The nuances are, are only so slight Wisdom refers to knowing how God's word commands us to live, whereas understanding is about discernment and perception and seeing how to piece wisdom together in specific situations in our lives. And all of this comes through the work of the Holy Spirit. But I need you to know, the Holy Spirit does not work alone in your life. The scriptures are the primary revealed source of knowledge for the believer as they are studied in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what produces the Christian mind and heart. And I got to say, after, you know, watching people in the church over many years, I've, I've kind of seen three types of people as it relates to the knowledge. There are many uh, people uh, who have no desire for knowledge, really don't want to be bothered with the work of getting to know God's Word. Uh, really what they want is some sense of religious ceremony in their life, and that's it. Don't bug me any further. If that's the case, something's missing. Something's off. But then there are some Christians who kind of want to bypass knowledge. What they really want is an experience with God without the part of really knowing His Word. And they want to relate to Him, you know, without really having to think much about His Word. They, they're, they're experience seekers because somehow someone got them thinking that if I could just have this experience, I would really know God. Then there's this third group, and they're kind of the people that want to know about Christian ideas and Christian philosophy, and they, they like to know the information. But when you look at their lives, there's really no transformation of the gospel at all. Paul's prayer here undermines all three of those views. In fact, Paul when you read him throughout the New Testament, he tends to get perturbed with churches in the New Testament that don't get it. Like, he'll start talking to them, and he'll be like, I can't even talk to you about this any further because you're, you're still kind of immature. You're, you're like a 40-year-old man still drinking milk out of a bottle. I mean, you should be on meat by now, and you're still drinking milk. I'd love to talk more with you about this, but I can't go deeper. You're, you're not grounded enough. And Paul's point here is, this isn't optional. Growing deeper in the knowledge of God, in the knowledge of His Word, in His ways, His priorities, His commands, they're not, not optional. And the reason this matters is because it directly affects this next thing. Look at um, number three, walk. The way I live my life will reveal my priorities. Notice verse 10. 
so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Now, here's a scenario for you. Imagine I uh, pulled together a focus group of people. Probably have to pay them, but pulled together a, a focus pe- a group of people who did not identify as Christian in any way, but who were open to being there as part of the focus group. And I asked them one question. And the question was, do you believe that the way you live your life is pleasing to God? I imagine there would be a variety of answers. Here's a few I'm thinking I'd hear. What God are you referring to? I don't believe in a supreme being, so that's an irrelevant question. If there is a God... I'm pretty sure my life would at least be sufficient, if not pleasing, because I'm not a bad person, so I can't see how there'd be a problem at all. Some would say, there's no way to know if our life is pleasing to God until we die. And then this one, I think, is growing rapidly in our culture. It would go like this. Well, since I follow my own spirituality, which I've kind of cobbled together, I'm not really hung up on that kind of thinking. Now, I'm banking on the fact that there are a bulk of people here today that are interested in what verse 10 means. Interested in what does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Interested in what it means to please Him. He doesn't leave us there. Look at the rest of the verse. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Okay, it feels like we're in a bit of a a loop. Do you notice? He's come back to knowledge again. He's come back to, I'm getting, actually, I'm getting a little dizzy with the amount of times he keeps going back to that. But let let me just really simplify this verse. He's saying this, you will live lives that are pleasing to God. You will do good works that bear fruit as a result of knowing the character of God deeper. You catch what I'm saying here? You will do this. You will live a pleasing life to God. You know, if you are growing deeper in the knowledge of God. Basically, really knowing him leads to following Jesus, loving Jesus, his ways, his commands, his priorities, and living them out. That means saying yes to some things and no to some other things. That's how verse 9 and 10 are connected. Listen, it is not good works that leads to a knowledge of God. That's not how it works. That, that's religion. Okay, Jesus came to destroy religion. Religion will kill you. It's the other way around. That's the gospel. So I just got to ask you this question. Your life right now. What priorities do you think God would see in them? I've been asking myself that question this week a lot. Where does he fit? Have you even asked yourself that question in the last year? Some might say, whoa, you know, reading this verse here, I got to say, there's some things I, I, I need to change. There are some things going on I gotta, that are out of line. Others might say, I don't know that I really care. We agree that that would be a good discussion with someone. Now listen, if your I don't really care is a way of saying I don't believe none of this matters to me, um, then we're right back to verse 4. We're right back to the issue of the gospel, okay? Okay? We're right back to, 
you know, dealing with the person and work of Jesus Christ, you either have faith in him or you do not. This is the truth of the gospel. It is either true or it is not. And if it's not, and you've come to that conclusion, you have a huge decision to make. I want, I want to tell you, you're in a great church, a welcoming church for people, if you're at that place, who'd be happy to help you discuss and think that through further. But, but there's another type of I don't care a lot of people miss. It's the person who, when I ask, do you really mean that when you say, I don't care? And they say, you know, maybe that's a bit strong. Maybe that's a bit messed up. I'm not thinking, I'm not thinking straight, really. I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm kind of lost in life right now. My, my, my life's a nightmare. I'm stressed out all the time. So, Leo, I'm not really thinking clearly about... If I'm pleasing God, I, I, I don't know. Uh, um, I, I, I know I don't have the strength for another day, I don't think. I don't know how to break through this situation right now, okay? So what do I, what do, I do? That is a very different I don't care. And brothers and sisters, be on the lookout for people in your life in this church who mask that kind of pain, confusion, lostness with phrases like, I don't care. God's got you placed there specifically to minister to them. And you're like, well, I don't know how to minister to them. Paul's going to show you right now a very important prayer that you can start laying down for that person. And maybe it's for yourself as well. Look at this fourth thing, power. God wants to strengthen me for his purposes. Love this. Verse 11. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience. Okay. You know, Leo, I, I, can, I can flourish as a Christian when things are going decent or great. But when trials come, and it's like three, four, five weeks of it, man, it, I, I, get, I get overwhelmed and lost. And, and the thing I want you to know today is that knowing God deeply is to know a God who wants to strengthen his own. That's his heart for you. That phrase, strengthened with all power, means Continuous need, continuous supply. It's not like God saying, all right, come on in, we'll give you your annual booster shot. Come back in a year, but don't bug me. No. No, you, you want to be thinking about an IV drip line. Continuous need, continuous supply. God giving strength as we need it. How? According to his glorious might. That's what Paul prayed, and that's what... God offers to every believer. So you ask, you know, when do we need strength the most? We need it when I'm weak, when I'm facing temptation, when all other options just seem to have disappeared on me, when I'm overwhelmed. Now notice the purpose of the strength. Look at verse 11. For all endurance and patience. Now, endurance has to do with the determination to persevere through difficult circumstances. And patience is kind of the uh, flip side, but it deals with people. It's the, uh, the patience to deal, or the long-suffering uh, to deal with people who have caused us wrong without seeking vengeance on them. So endurance and patience, this is what God is promising power. I'm guessing there are a few here that are like, yeah, yeah, you know what? I, I could really use some help there. What I love about this verse is what Paul doesn't say, by the way. He doesn't say, 
Strengthen yourselves. He doesn't say, tough it out, tighten the bootstraps, stop your whining. No, because he's talking about the fact that there is a power outside of ourselves that he is saying God is to provide. He's not saying, this power is in you already. Just flip on the light switch and it'll, ki- it'll kick in, you disobedient people. No, it's, there is an alien power. That's alien, meaning outside of us that God is, uh, will provide for his people. It doesn't reside in us. That's his whole point. Who here doesn't bleed? Who here doesn't suffer? Who doesn't get sick? Who doesn't have bad years? So Paul is praying for a power outside of them that only resides with God to come in fullness to the max. But I've asked for this, Leo. I've asked, I've asked, I've asked. Nothing's changed. I do not judge you if that's what you feel today. I do not diminish your weariness, your weary heart. I only know, I only know what I've been sent to say this morning by the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to leave it to him to apply it to you. Listen, it's this. There is no addiction God cannot break. There is no sin God's power cannot defeat. There is no task to which you have been called that God's power cannot see come to fulfillment. There is no fruit that we are called to bear that God's power cannot produce. There's no rebellious child whose God's power cannot restore. There's no broken marriage God's power cannot reconcile. There's no dark valley God's power cannot guide you through. It may not look like you thought it would, but the power supply is there. Are you going to lean into it this morning? Final thing. Identity. My confidence to approach God is based on who he says I am. She was a 30-year-old woman On the surface of it, you would say, she's got it all together. She had it all. She had a phenomenal marriage, beautiful child, a career that she really loved. And I'm asking myself, why is she crying as we're talking? She says to me, I try so hard to follow Jesus. I mean, I really believe. I really have faith. I'm in his word every day. I serve in the local church, but I can't really pray. I mean, I try. It just feels like lip service It feels like I'm mimicking what I see the other Christians who look like they are really good at prayer doing, but inside I know it feels hollow. I just don't really deserve, I believe I deserve to be there talking to God. There's there's so much in my past that I'm ashamed of, so much I regret, and, and he knows it all. And every time I really try to pour my heart out to him, I have this feeling of being stained, that I have no place there, and this prayer is falling on deaf ears. Not an uncommon feeling for a Christian. I would see that change today for you, for me, because so many places in Scripture, but here uniquely, you are given the secret to access with God. Access, confidence, to call on his name. Do you want that?
Do you need that now? I mean, pick up with me at the end of verse 11. It says, with joy, giving thanks to the Father in verse 12. Now, I don't have time uh, to go into all the reasons why about half the translations uh, place with joy right in verse 12 or connect it to the idea of verse 12. I think that's the better reading. I think the reading goes like this. With joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, I want to zero in on one word that's been on my mind all all week. I mean, because in all the years I've studied this book, I've never really been blown away by its power. It's brilliant. It's blunt. It's radical. It's the word qualified. It says he has qualified you. He has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of the kingdom of light. Now, what is the opposite of qualified? Well, there's really two, isn't there? There's unqualified and disqualified. The question is, outside of Jesus Christ, which one does the Bible say I am? Well, let's start with unqualified. Unqualified means I simply lack a talent or a certification or an attribute or a skill. There's really no shame or guilt in that, is there? I mean, I can start working towards getting qualified. I can work my way to being qualified. That's not what the Bible's talking about. When it talks about the fact that God has qualified you, the opposite is you were once disqualified. And if the good news of the gospel is good news, that means there's some bad news. And, and this was the bad news before Jesus. The bad news is this, that from, from, from the word is, by nature and choice, you are the kind of person who is prohibited from entering God's kingdom. God says, you think thoughts and commit deeds that warrant exclusion from my presence. It's not simply that you would be admitted if you could. It's that you are the moral and spiritual opposite of what is required for anyone who would share in my fellowship. And here Paul comes along in his prayer with the gospel saying, if you're a Christian, you've been made qualified, which is another way of saying you've been made worthy. Do you see what I mean by, it's a, that's kind of counterintuitive. It doesn't say obey and then get qualified. It's saying he has qualified you, now live your life out in obedience to him. God's not standing at the top of some stairway looking down on you, kind of saying, you can do it, come on, step up, step up, come on and get up. No, God comes down the stairway and somehow qualifies you. Well, how does that happen? Answer, verse 13 and 14. Considered to be some of the best words Paul has ever penned about what Jesus has done for you. One preacher referred to these two verses alone as worthy of an angel's tongue. So powerfully do they convey what Jesus has done for you. Now, I don't have an angel's tongue, but I'm going to read them. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, that word redemption is often translated as ransom. Do you know what a ransom is? It's an exchange for a prisoner. It's giving something in exchange to get someone out of prison, to get someone out of bondage, to get someone out of slavery. We're told that redemption in him, the son whom he loves, what that means is we're not worthy. But Jesus came and exchanged places with us. 
You see, Jesus takes our unworthiness upon himself and gives us his worthiness. You say, does that, wait, wait, what are you saying? You're saying that Jesus literally became rebellious and disobedient? No. What I'm saying is he came and stood in the place of the unworthy one and he got what unworthiness is due. He stood in place of the disobedient one and he got what disobedience was due so that when you become a Christian, there's been an exchange. He has become your worthiness. Let me close with this thought for you. Whatever feelings today you're having of inadequacy or shame or depths of despair that may be crippling you, if you find yourself saying, I'm not up to the task, I'm a spiritual failure. God doesn't want me in his presence. God's saying to you right now, right now, listen. He's saying to you, I want you to set those lies aside. And I want you to approach me with confidence because of what I have declared about you. Talk to me. Pour your heart out to me. Petition away. I want to hear it. I've shown you the things I want you to be thinking about in prayer. Right here in this passage. So lean into them. Make them your own. Call on my name. Let's just pray for a sec. What words, what words do we have, Lord, for the one who stood in the place of the unworthy? What words do we have, Lord, for the one who has qualified us, who has redeemed us, who has ransomed us out of darkness into light with inheritance? What words do we have today in our weakness for the one who promises to deliver power for endurance and patience. We have praise. That's what we have for you. We have praise. That is your due. And I pray as we do today in this next bit, Lord, that you would meet us in a special way. Amen.